Hey, Cabot Cove Gazette fans, this is TJ coming to you with a little favor to ask of you. So my dear colleague and co-host Bridget is currently undertaking a survey on both Murder, She Wrote and Angela Lansbury fandom for a book she is currently writing. So if you are as in love with either Murder, She Wrote or Angela Lansbury as we are, we, she and I would love it if you could take about 30 minutes, it's uh, 30 questions on the questionnaire, to speak a little bit about your own fandom, what drew you to Murder, She Wrote, and so forth. And you can find the link for it on our Cabot Cove Gazette social media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thanks very much in advance. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of your favorite Murder, She Wrote podcast and ours to the Cabot Cove Gazette. As always, we're very thrilled to be coming to you. Uh, I am your co-host, TJ West. And I'm your other co-host, Bridget Keys. And this week, we wanted to start out with just a brief memoriam to the grand dam of um, of all television, Betty White, who, as most of you know, passed away New Year's Eve at the age of 99, just a few days, actually weeks shy of her 100th birthday. And, you know, we know that there was probably quite a lot of overlap between Angela Lansbury and Betty White fandom. So as Bridget and I, as devoted fans of the Golden Girls, just wanted to take a minute to express how much we loved Betty White and how deeply saddened we are to hear of her passing. And we've talked a lot on this podcast about comparisons between her star persona and Angela Lansbury's and also their careers and how um, in the longevity of their careers. And I think, uh, you know, so it's really fitting, even though this isn't a podcast about Betty White, it's not a podcast about the Golden Girls. I think it's really fitting that we play tribute to her because to me, they seem entwined or entangled in some way. I don't know. Well, I'm it's searching true for the words because I'm sad. It also occurs to me that Murder, She Wrote and the Golden Girls were on the air at roughly the same time. I mean, Murder, She Wrote sends a bit past um, Golden Girls, but they were on the air at the same time. So they're sort of in the zeitgeist of these older feisty women kind of making life on their own terms. And yeah, a really cool shift in 1980s TV, right? That um, now we have these older women and they're living on their own. And it's like, here is life past, you know, the death of your husband like you can have this really whole cool career a new career new life new friends um yeah it was a moment in tv history i think that was really exciting um for showing what what possibilities there were once your kids were grown yeah and what also strikes me about both angela lansbury and betty white is that they both had this phenomenal ability to be sort of every women they you know they had an appeal that transcends age or any of the other differences that we normally like associate with America, the American public. I think that, you know, even though Angela is not American, she still has a kind of transcendent stardom that everyone just sort of regards her as a treasure in the same way that Betty White was yeah. universally, universally mourned upon her passing, which I think in this day of, you know, fierce partisanship and ever deepening like culture war divides, it's really extraordinary that this, you know, ex this woman who, literally was at the forefront of television from its inception was get, got better as she got older and that you know when she passed the entire country mourned I mean because it really mm -hmm. didn't feel like not only that we all lost our grandmother collectively but also that we lost you know this cultural figure that we all deeply admired because she just radiated such genuine joy and love for life and I think that that's really an extraordinary legacy to leave behind. Okay, so this week... You have a vision for this, I'm sure. I, I do not have a vision for this. So this week, we're talking about Hit Run and Homicide. 
and we are back in Cabot Cove for the second time. I've been craving getting back to Cabot Cove and we're finally there again. And do you want to speak a little bit about why you were craving being back in Cabot Cove? Because I agree with you that there is a particular pleasure that comes from the Cabot yeah. Cove episodes that I think is worth kind of diving into. That this episode does particularly well, I think. Yeah, I mean, we've talked in earlier episodes of this podcast about how it, it's fitting that we have the pilot, then we have a Cabot Cove episode, right, to sort of establish what Cabot Cove looks like. And then after that, we have a series of episodes where Jessica's traveling around. And you and I kind of agreed that we thought that was a good way to start the series to establish that she has skyrocketed to fame, right? Um, so she's traveling around for various reasons because she's so famous now. She goes to LA because her book is getting made into a movie, et cetera, et cetera. But I think what um, I was craving was a return to Cabot Cove and to that cozy sensibility. That was always the appeal of Murder, She Wrote for me because we met Amos, we met Ethan, uh, and we got to see the beautiful main coastline for just that one brief episode, right? And it's it feels really nice to return back there and get to meet those characters again because her, their relationships with Jessica at this point in the series aren't totally fleshed out. So we still we need time to really understand like what her relationship to Ethan is, what her relationship with Amos Tupper is, and we get a lot of that in this episode. Right. And one of the things that stood out to me the minute the episode starts and we get these lovely overhead shots of, you know, the New England coastline. And I thought to myself, wow, first of all, man, this show has a lot of money to invest. <laughs> but then secondly, I was just, I was like you, struck by, there's something very comforting about these images of Americana. I mean, there, it's a sort of fundamental Americanness that you see in these opening shots that and then of course it zooms in on jessica on her bike and all of it is it does really capture that ethos of cabot cove that as you say we've been craving and that will come to be so important to what makes the show so enduringly popular and was obviously popular at the time well and you're talking about americana and i think it's worth noting that um the first bits of dialogue we get are that there's a founder's day picnic coming up and, and we see the the attempt first attempted murder actually happens at a founder's day picnic and i was wondering to myself um you know so much of the cabot cove episodes are about history it's about the american revolution um early american history cabot cove's history and i think there's um there's something really cheesy and fun about that too that we have Jessica sort of jet setting around the world to these places where we've talked about in previous episodes, like uh, Lovers and Other Killers, they're in Seattle and it's kind of this mysterious place with no past, right? It's this place out of time where all these weird noir things can happen. But Cabot Cove is always anchoring us to the past and specifically like the revolutionary past. I don't know where I'm going with that. <laughs> right. Well, no, there's that. There, so there's a couple of things I think that are worth, you know, elaborating there. And there's that conversation that Jessica has with a, a fellow townsperson where she's, you know, talking about one of the founders being a pirate. And that's yeah. not what's objectionable. It's that he was fought for the Red or that he fought for the British. He fought, and, he was fought, know, fought for the British. That's worse than being a pirate. Right. Yeah. So I thought that was a very funny moment, especially given that, you know, Jessica has also talked about in the, in previous episodes how one of her own ancestors killed a red coat if i recall correctly that was one of the earlier conceits of an earlier cabot cove the episode. only murderer so, in her family and it right. didn't count right because it was a red coat yes because they killed a red coat it's interesting then that there is that sense of connection between cabot cove as a specifically new england setting and the revolutionary past in which you know it is kind of a conceit that 
the New Englanders in particular have a stronger, tighter relationship to their early American past than maybe some other areas of the U.S. because they were so pivotal in the revolution. So it's yeah, it's fitting that she has this conversation about that. Well, yeah, I I am a Midwesterner by birth and by most of my adult life. And so for me, um, the fact that they're so obsessed with their past is, is really funny to me. I don't know, maybe people who live on in the East coast, probably that resonates with them in a different way. For me, it's cutesy. I mean, as an Appalachian by birth, we also have a, a very strong attachment to our history, but not in quite the same way because, you know, from West Virginia and other kind of those liminal areas, they don't, as you say, they don't have that same colonial past in the same in the same way that like the New Englanders do because we don't have Bunker Hill or we don't have mm-hmm. Lexington and Concord we don't have all the other kind we don't have you know uh, Ticonderoga like all those kind of iconic revolutionary moments are kind of limited as you say to the Eastern Seaboard so it it gives a texture to Cabot Cove that seems believable because we have those kind of attachments to the Revolutionary War in our collective imagination of what it looks like. We also get to see the Cabot Cove. Um welcome to Cabot Cove sign. And we find out that the population is 3,560, which is just a fun bit of trivia. Which, you know, it's kind of crazy. Like my hometown is very Cabot Cove-esque in the sense that it's a very small town, but we have like less than a thousand people. So I was really struck by the fact that Cabot Cove doesn't seem like the kind of place that would have 3,000 people in it. Wait, are you saying that you think Cabot Cove is big town because it has 3,000 people? I'd say it's bigger. No, I wouldn't say it's a big town. Maybe it is a big, t- it's a big town. It's not a big city. Oh my God. I was town. like freaking out that there's only 3000 people given how much murder takes place there and how many people Jessica knows too. It's like there's 3000 people. You run out of friends in a week. Oh, big city people. <laughs> so, um, the first thing that we hear is, uh, you know, Jessica's riding her bike and she's about to run into Van Johnson, our guest star for the week, who is playing Daniel, the inventor. And I love this opening because it's Jessica on a bike. And we've talked before about how the series really emphasizes how physically active she is. Um, but it's also like he's staring down at his bike because he's invented stuff. And I'm going to talk about that in a second. But she's um, ringing her bell because he's about to crash into her. And it's so dumb because like, why doesn't she just move her bike? Like, just go to the left. You wouldn't crash. But then we wouldn't have a scene. Right. But what I uh, so so Van Johnson is our inventor and he's our number one murder suspect for the episode, although he's ultimately innocent because he's just a nice, kooky absent-minded inventor and in the first moment when he almost crashes into his bike with Jessica he explains that he's looking at his bike because he's rigged up this whole computer display it does heart monitoring it does pulse monitoring tells you how fast you're going and I was like well so Van Johnson basically just invented Peloton that was my exact thought when I (laughs) I thought wow Murder She Wrote once again being ahead of its time in terms of what kind of technology has (laughs) And um, did it also make you think of Mr. Big or is that reference above your head? It did not make me think of Mr. There Big, but I'm not a huge <laughs> sex in the city aficionado. You can revoke my gay card at any point, I suppose. But the other, um, the other major invention that is at the heart of the episode is the self-driving car. Um, I love how everyone is so skeptical. It's supposed to be so spooky and unbelievable when people say this car was coming at somebody, it was trying to run them down, but nobody was driving it. Mm -hmm. And everyone's like, this can't even, what? This is unbelievable. So, you know, he also, he invented Peloton. He also invented Tesla. 
and it's he doesn't seem nearly as rich as Elon Musk. So it's really unfortunate for Van Johnson. But while we're on the subject of Van Johnson, I wanted to point out two things. One, that I love this character, um, mostly because I love Van Johnson. I think he is a really fantastic, very affable kind of actor. And I well- wanted to talk about that. Do you have like a long history re- uh, memory of Van Johnson? I wouldn't say long necessarily, but I do remember seeing him a lot. My grandmother really liked him. And my most vivid memory is he's in Yours, Mine, and Ours, the famous uh, romantic comedy slash family comedy with Lucille Ball and Henry Fonda. And so that's my kind of first memory with him. But I've seen him in other things. And he was very popular and very you know successful in classic Hollywood, as is the case with so many guest stars in these early episodes of Murder, She Wrote. But yeah, he was an MGM star under Dory Sherry. Yep. Um, but I, you know, I, I think it's interesting that you have that better relationship with them because obviously I've seen a lot of classical Hollywood movies, but my relationship to Van Johnson is exclusively through his episode of I Love Lucy. And in fact, the only reason I know who Dory Sherry is, is because of I Love Lucy. And I was thinking about you when I was, I, I was thinking about that and making notes about it. Um, and I was going to, I wondered because you and I both study film history and media history, but your studies were more rooted in classical Hollywood. Mine's later in the 20th century. Um, And I was like, I realized how much of my knowledge of classical Hollywood actually came from I Love Lucy, from watching reruns as a kid. And so that as as I watched stuff broadcast in real time, like this episode of Murder, She Wrote, I knew who those stars were because Lucy told me they were someone famous because she'd be trying to track down their autographs. But I think it's probably very different for you. For me, at least, it's very layered. Like there is that sense as like you, I had early encounters with classical Hollywood, not through I Love Lucy, but through my grandmother, who was, you know, a devout aficionado and lover, adorer, really, of classic Hollywood. So I would usually recognize these people from movies that I had watched with her. And then when I went to graduate school and did my training and did my dissertation on classic Hollywood, I gained an even more nuanced and deeper knowledge of these actors and these stars. So when I see them now, there's a whole sort of constellation of like affective registers that I'm encountering when I see these people. So, you know, I'm having memories of watching these old movies with my grandmother, watching Murder, She Wrote with my grandmother, then also, mm-hmm. you know, classic Hollywood. And so, of course, which brings us to Van Johnson, who is well known in certain circles for his um, cl- being closeted, as were many people, obviously, and classic Hollywood. So whenever he's referred to as the confirmed bachelor, I just couldn't help but oh. chuckle a bit to myself. Is he, was Van Johnson a confirmed bachelor? So, you know, in addition to Van Johnson, we have a lot of other really cool guest stars in this episode. We have Bruce Gray, who is in a total of five Murder, She Wrote episodes. Okay, hold um, on. Sorry, well, hold. it's fine because one person can still keep talking. Yeah. So now you've ruined all my flow. So I'm leaving that part in. So, you know, in addition to Van Johnson, we have a lot of other um, really cool guest stars in this episode. We have Bruce Gray, who plays Meryl, who's the guy who shows up and immediately gets murdered. So he's not in the episode a lot, but Bruce Gray was in a total of five murders she wrote episodes in addition to his long career. Um, He was in multiple iterations of Star Trek. And of course, as known homosexuals, uh, we know him best as George Schickel of Schickel's Pickles from Queer as Folk, right? I've forgotten that, but that's a good. Uh, good How did you back. forget he's George Schickel? It's been a long time since I've watched Queer as Folk. He died in an airplane having sex. 
on an airplane bathroom. Remember? I know. But I yeah, I do remember the character, but I just <laughs> didn't realize that was him. Wow. Yeah, that was totally him. And then we also have June Allison, who's also been acting for decades and decades. Yeah, definitely another star of classic Hollywood, which, you know, as I've said before in, in this pod, I love that about Murder, She Wrote, that it gives these kind of, you know, I wouldn't say fading, but certainly stars that are no longer, you know, at the height of their success, a new opportunity to reach new audiences. So I always appreciate that whether it was through Angela Lansbury's kind of beneficence or whether it was just the show's kind of general ethos, whatever, whoever was responsible for giving these guest stars their their role, I'm deeply appreciative of that effort. Well, it's also useful for the series because um, they're trying to attract, I mean, it's on CBS, right? Which traditionally skews to an older audience. Um, so you've mentioned how your grandma knew all of these people. And I'm sure she also loved watching Murder, She Wrote because she got to see them again, right? Mm-hmm. And we also have the return of Amos and Ethan, as we talked about. And the thing that stood out to me in this episode um, was how wonderfully complex Jessica's relationships with each of them are. So Ethan is just so nice and protective of her. And the big climax, um, you know, is Jessica gets into the driverless car and somebody starts it and she's careening through Cabot Cove. And of course we know Jessica doesn't know how to drive. Um, And Ethan knows this too. So when he sees her in the car, because he's such a good friend, he knows immediately she's in danger because he knows that she doesn't know how to drive, right? And so he chases after her. And I, I thought that was just such a lo- lovely little moment of like how deeply he knows her and cares about her, you know, that instantly he gets, oh, her life is in danger right now. She doesn't know how to drive. Um, and then the other moment that I loved was when Ethan very gently suggests that maybe Amos doesn't know what he's doing and Jessica can help him. And so she goes to Amos and is like trying to put ideas into his head as if he came up with them, you know, and she lets him say, gosh, Miss Fletcher, if you're not busy, maybe you'd like to help. It might help you do research on your book. And she's like, yeah, that's totally it. Right. It'll, it'll be helpful for me to help you with the investigation. It's just such a sweet moment of showing like, how deeply these people care about each other, but also like how nuanced and complex their relationships are. And that we as the audience are expected to see that too, right? We're supposed to understand all of the layers underneath that dialogue. Yeah, I really appreciated that. I second all of what you just said. And I love that to some degree, Claude Aiken is kind of playing against type here because you know up until this point and most of his television appearances, at least most of the ones that I've seen, he's very good at playing villains you know, whether particularly in Gunsmoke, which he appeared in many episodes, usually almost inevitably as a bad guy. And he kind of, you know, has that reputation. And so I love that he's putting his kind of bluff, uh, how do I want to call it? Like his sort of bluff masculinity to a different use, as you say, to being very protective and very nurturing toward Jess. He calls her Jessie, which I think is just lovely. I just love that little grace note of their relationship. And as you say, is really goes out of his way to, um, protect her but also they have a really strong bond like I love that they're playing the video game the arcade video game together (laughs) they're gonna you know have a challenge at the end that they're gonna be in a tournament I think those little little notes really help to add depth and, and a real resonance and richness to their dynamic yeah yeah so there's a new arcade game at the grocery store and he Ethan is like the high scoring 
he's the holder of the highest score or something. And Jessica tries to play it. And he's like, oh, you're going to waste a quarter. You don't know what you're doing. And, and of course, in playing the video game, which is a game about um, driving, that's how she, that's her aha moment where she figures out the murder. But the episode ends with them rushing back to the grocery store because there's going to be a big tournament to play this arcade game. And as you're saying, it's it's fun because we get to see that they're really competitive. They bicker and they're competitive with each other in a way that actually only people who love each other really deeply can be. Um, but I also think it's a nice moment of showing their youthfulness, right? Like it's an arcade game. We expect it to be kids playing it. And they're like fighting over who's going to play it first and who's going to play it best, uh, which is really sweet and like keeps that sort of youthful sense to Jessica alive. And to, pick, to piggyback off what you were saying about friends who bicker and have a competitive relationship with one another, I'm sure that most of our listeners by now have gathered that that is very much the dynamic that Miss Keys and I share. And I don't so, know what you're talking about. So as much as we are more like Seth and Jessica, I think we, there are shades of uh, of Ethan and Jessica to us as well. Because I am, for all of, I, I like to prick her sometimes and deeply protective of my, of my dear Bridget. Do um I you know we 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 haven't had Seth Haslett as a character yet so maybe we'll have to wait until season two when we get that to talk about this but I actually wonder if um there's a difference Seth Jessica versus Ethan Jessica if there actually is a difference in those relationships yeah well definitely maybe I'm getting ahead that. yeah I mean I I think that I would I give a, a preliminary yes I think there is a definite difference between their dynamic but as you say we can wait till we get to season two and actually meet yeah. Seth before we make that full determination poor Ethan he doesn't even get like a swan song he just vanishes we hardly knew ye we hardly knew ye um and speaking of Jessica's youthfulness another thing that was very exciting to me is that she wears sneakers in this episode she is on her bike you guys in pants and sneakers so she is she's stylish they look kind of like Adidas actually. And so she's really stylish and also like, you know, she is not an old lady, although she did wear like the classic old lady um, leather loafers that my kindergarten teacher wore in 1985. She does wear them in a later scene, but I'm giving her credit because she was rocking those sneakers for a good long time in this episode. To make a little callback to um, Deadly Lady, we do have to remember that Jessica Fletcher is a shoe fetishist, so it makes <laughs> sense that she would have a wide range of footwear available to make her way through the rocky shores of Cabot Cove. <laughs> J.B. Fletcher's shoe fetishist lives on. Yeah. But as okay. soon as you uttered those lines, they were doomed to live in or- immortality. People will be like, oh, do you listen to a Murder, She Wrote podcast? Oh, yeah. Which one do you listen to? The one where they're obsessed with talking about how she's a shoe fetishist. <laughs> she also has a really um, snazzy red sweater vest in this episode, too. I was really loving her looks in this episode. I thought she looked really great and like not fussy old lady, uh, dowdy librarian. It was like, like, shoot. And it kind of gave me vibes to my Graham, who used to wear like polyester pants and button down shirts, you know, like. Like, look, it's the 80s and there's women's liberation now. Okay, we're going to bake our pies in pants. My grandmother also wore polyester pants for almost the entire time that I knew her. Like she wore the same shade of navy polyester pants. <laughs> With um, part, of the, part of the waistband was elastic too. I believe so, yes. Yeah. <laughs> so No shame in that. We all wear leggings now. So I don't know why we're laughing. I mean, who even cares about the murder, right? 
Well, I mean, that actually was what I was getting ready to say, that what strikes me, we're now almost 20 minutes into this episode and we have yet to talk about the actual murder that is the supposed center of this episode. But I think that's a function of two things. One, as I messaged you when I was preparing and prepping for this episode, I said- I didn't read his messages. But that's no surprise. But be that as it may, I was struck by how underwhelming the murder plot was. In this oh, episode. I'm so glad you said that because I was going to say the reason I'm talking about all this other stuff is because the murder was kind of stupid. And it was silly in, in both execution, but also in its plausibility and why I should care about these characters. <laughs> yeah, There's just really, it's not one of the more dynamic murder moments and it lacks the kind of punch. So it's really an episode that I think is more primarily geared toward helping us to gather and understand Cabot Cove and Jessica's relate to adding further depth to her relationships with them. And of course, the joy of seeing, you know, Van Johnson and um, June Allison together and getting ready to get into a late life relationship. That's what really the episode is about. Not so much this rather ham-fisted, not very particularly interesting murder. Well, okay. So since we didn't do our, our summary at the beginning of the episode, the murder is, you know, the, f- the first attempted murder is that the self-driving car is chasing down this guy, the stranger who's come to town, Woodley, puts him in the hospital. Woodley's partner comes because he's like, oh no, you were just hospitalized by a self-driving car. I better go see if you're okay. And then he immediately gets murdered by the self-driving car. So the question is like, what's motivating the self-driving car? Uh, and it turns out that Woodley and Merrill the guy who got, gets murdered were partners. Van Johnson's character used to work for them and do inventions for them. And so the whole thing is just a scheme to see who can get control over Van Johnson's plans, right? Um, it's really dumb. And ultimately it's like Woodley set the whole thing up with this complicated twist that he did it with Van Johnson's nephew's fiance, which is like this really unnecessary and dumb twist. But um, I, I think what, what I didn't like and was frustrated by is how much of the investigation just was like, at one point I just wrote, I'm calling bullshit on this episode. So Jessica's like, if it was a driverless car, it had to be operated by a remote control. I'm like, it did? First of all, why is that necessarily so? And second of all, if that's necessarily so, how does Jessica Fletcher know that, right? And then later she's like, well, obviously, there was a van the car was hiding in and the van was in the woods. And it's like, again, what? How does Jessica know this stuff that no one else does? So I think it it was not a good episode in establishing her as a skilled deductive reasoning investigator who pieces things together that other people don't see through logic and intuition because the jumps for me were totally illogical. Mm-hmm. And of course, because it's Jessica, they turned out to be right. But it was like, where are you getting this stuff, lady? So it was really frustrating for me. Yeah, I too found the like all of that to be true. And I mean, it's one of those cases where I was not really clear about what was happening murder-wise. <laughs> and I just thought, okay, I'm just along for the, if you'll forgive for the, the expression. Ride. I was going to say, if you'll forgive the expression, along for the ride. Yeah. <laughs> Much like Jessica when she's trapped in the car. But I was just like, okay, I appreciate this episode for its nice overhead shots. I mean, we can also talk about the car chase. Like that is one of the key moments of the, like- It's actually, it's a really good car chase for broadcast TV in the 1980s. I mean, it was, it's full of action. It really gets you worried about what's going to happen to Jessica. Um, the car keeps going and going and going. So we get to see lots of Cabot Cove. Um, we get to see her plowing through a gate, you know? So there's some cool stunts to it. Yeah. 
which made me think I was wondering, were they just kind of like trying to figure out how to fill up this episode? So they're like, <laughs> well, let's give her a car chase. You know, that'll occupy a good three or four minutes, you know? And well, and I, I called of- it the climax, but it wasn't even because it was like this big, huge car chase. And then later we also restaged the first murder. So that also is really climactic. So it's like, it's just, a, I think it's like, look, we spent a lot of money having this car. We better put it in, you know, 80% of this episode. Mm-hmm. Which also leads to my question, Teach, like not just in terms of uh, the car as a, a prop that's being used in the episode, but also like in the narrative world, if you're going to make a driverless car, as dri- a self-driving car, or in this case, a remote control operated car, why the F are you using some big ass old station wagon? Like it's huge. And it was like the classic 80s station wagon with the fake wood paneling which is amazing. But like, what, why a station wagon? Nobody ever explained this to me. And I'm actually, I'm really upset about this. I need to know why it was a station wagon. Maybe because it's less suspicious and more easily blended into general kind of 1980s suburb or, you know, small town life. Like it wouldn't raise as many suspicions if it was, you know, like a Ferrari or some other kind of more I don't think I just so something smaller, you know, because the whole shtick was they're trying to hide it. Mm-hmm. So no one can find it. It's like, well, don't use a big ass old station wagon then. Use a tiny two-door or something. Right. And and speaking of suspicious, you know, the the car is operated by remote control and the remote control has to be within a certain distance of the car, right, to get the signals. So there's this van that's always on the scene when the car is operating. And during Jessica's car chase, it's following the car through town. And at one point it even stops and they give us like this nice shot of the van. And I'm like, I'll just write down the license plate because clearly no one else in the episode is interested in pursuing the function of this van. So it's 934781 if anyone's interested, because obviously Amos, Jessica, even Jessica, like nobody puts together that this van is probably involved until like the last five minutes of the episode. It was ridiculous. Yeah, that was definitely not the most um, coherent, shall we say, <laughs> plot points. And, and, and I think the driving the car to the chase with Jessica, you know, the big threat is that they're headed towards a cliff overlooking the ocean. And so is there a danger that this car is going to kill Jessica? And I was like, no, this is like a million dollar prototype. They're not going to crash their prototype. Right. Whoever's behind this. She's going to mm-hmm. be fine. Also because she's J.P. Fletcher, but like they're not going to crash their self-driving car. Right. So, I mean, the only thing that is, if we can call it this, like compelling about this whole plot is that it does sort of showcase how so often the murders in Cabot Cove come about as the result of outsiders coming in and yeah. being unscrupulous and terrible and willing to kill their partners and incriminate Daniel Um I mean, and even like Daniel's niece or nephew's fiance, her motivation seems strange because if Daniel is declared insane, which is part of the plan, then his nephew will get like his estate, his estate, and then she'll control. But it's like she's assuming that she's going to control the nephew quite effectively, and I'm just like, what? Like, what is going? Well, on? she kind of has been. I mean, she persuaded the nephew that he needs to have psychiatric, that Daniel needs True. to have psychiatric evaluation, and he was like, yeah, maybe you're right. So, yeah, but it is just, it is a little bit implausible, right? That she's like unfianced to this guy for the sake of having his uncle committed so that she can marry him and they can take over his estate. I mean, it's pretty elaborate. It's right. As yeah. with so many other murders, like the, the lawyer from the lawyer. The from, lawyer. 
from it's a dog's life you know there's a lot of assumptions baked into these people when they're their murder cases it's like man maybe i'm just more cautious than your garden variety you know murder she wrote suspect and cr- criminal but i'm just i'm too cautious i don't want to think that the characters themselves are not thinking things through yeah, yeah. and i mean also just comparing like i would why i wouldn't do these things because i like all things to be clear and you know not leave things to chance so the only reason you haven't murdered someone yet is because the whole shtick of trying to engage, get engaged to their nephew and take over their estate just is, it's not, just not believable enough. So that's why it's holding you back from committing murder. I mean, among Believability. other things, but yeah, but yeah, that's the, that's the real reason, right? Yeah. Oh God, I'm glad we're doing this on Zoom and not face-to-face. I'm not terrified of you. Well, I mean, you clearly should have been before is what this is illustrating. <laughs> You have, I, you have grossly underestimated me, my dear. <laughs> At one point I even wrote, like, Jessica goes, I think the van was operating the car. And I just was like, oh, my God, lady, catch up. And I, like, underlined it. I love you so much, Jessica, but you were really off your game this week. I don't know. Yeah. And yet somehow still five steps ahead of Amos Tupper. So. Yes. But overall, I thought that it was you know it was an entertaining episode like I wasn't oh yeah and I thought it was cute and lovely and I I love the glimpses of Cabot Cove and I loved it like just at a formal level because you know as the car chase there's some lovely overhead shots of that too so there's a real sophistication to the the filmmaking or the you know the uh what do we want to call it the filming yeah filming of it that is really you know a testament to how this show really is quite sophisticated which, as we know, you know, is true of many broadcast TV shows, but it's always kind of- He's only saying that because I yelled at him the last time he didn't say that. But I, I do think it is worth just sort of, you know, looking back from 2022, it's very easy to maybe be dismissive of shows from previous eras, but Murder Short is a good testament to why it's worth taking a more generous look at TV shows of this prior period. On the whole subject of remote control cars, um, you know, we're led to believe that this is something- crazy and implausible and like maybe people just aren't maybe they're just not seeing the driver there's got to be a driver right so i did a little research and actually do you know that the first experiments with um radio control cars were as far back as the 1920s i did not know that actually the first field testing experiments began in the 1950s so it's not that i expect amos tupper to be like some sort of automotive history you know maven but um, as someone who now lives in Michigan in greater Detroit, I have a duty to share with you all to, to know automotive history and to share it with you all. And so I just thought it was interesting that in the 1980s, the idea of a driverless car was so futuristic mm-hmm. that we don't believe it could be real. Uh, and yet, um, and, and I think we would say the same thing in 2020, right? We know there's tests, we know there's prototypes out there, but like most of us don't have one in our garage. And yet, like, this is now a, a technology that's 100 years old. Mm-hmm. Pretty cool, yeah. huh? Oh, that is. That's part of the reason I love doing this show with you is because you always find these gems <laughs> in the in the research that are worth looking at and thinking about. And, you know, showing how much thought goes into to Murder, She Wrote. I almost said Golden Girls. Into Murder, She Wrote. Even on the less, you know, substantive episodes, if we want to say that. Yeah. So what else we got? I don't know. We barely talked about the plot, but I think that's fine. Yeah, there wasn't it's much fine. to it, so. There isn't much to it, yeah. Okay. Actually, wait, I have one more thing. Um, I want to know if you thought Van Johnson, Daniel's nephew, was hot. Because 
last week we did lovers and other killers and we talked about david who's our sort of main guest star that week and you said that he looked like a twinkie porn star from the 1980s which is of course why jessica would be seduced by him and this week we have van johnson's nephew what's his name tony and he has like fluffy feathery sandy blonde hair and he's tan and he has very blue eyes and so i was wondering the whole time if you also thought that he was hot and looked like a porn star i didn't necessarily think he was hot but i did think he looked like a porn star and it's something about the physiognomy of the face in particular like there's just kind of a simultaneously youthful but also kind of jaded look that these characters tend to have these character actors i suppose from the 80s tend to have that makes them seem older than they are diegetically i don't know if that makes sense but they look older than they're supposed to be and so mm -hmm. I, I suspect that maybe part of that is just being out in the sun all the time. Part of it is probably, you know, world weariness at never being coming a star and instead either being a character actor or a porn star. So I do think that there is something <laughs> about these, this particular type of actor that I think engenders my response in that regard. Yeah. So the okay. short answer is yes, I do think that so he did look a like a porn actor. star, but you weren't hot for him. Just not, not like I was with David, no. Okay. This is good. You're learning a little bit more about your taste. So that was that was very useful. That's the high quality content that the uh, Kevin Cook is at listeners <laughs> tune in for. That and Shickles Pickles. Yep. So we should probably wrap this up. So next week we'll be discussing. Actually, I have no idea. So we're, I don't know why I said that. I have no idea what the next episode is. <laughs> Another episode of Murder, She Wrote will be coming next week. Um, but for now, that's all about Hit Run and Homicide. And I'm Bridget Keys. And I'm TJ West. Our theme song is Reaching the Sky, composed by Alexander Nakarada under Creative Commons license. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at, at Cove Gazette. You can also find us on Facebook, the Cabot Cove Gazette.